The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Vicki, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kwame. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Same, same. It's it's nice to it's nice to meet you. Likewise, I have heard great things. We have a lot of mutual friends, and we have a mutual mentee, Minson. Uh, we, uh, I'm sure he'll come up at some point during this interview. So shout out to Minson here. Um, so how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay, um, try and make it short. Um, so I uh, I spent 25 years. Um, as a lawyer litigating complex commercial cases. Um, some of them involve products. Um, I spent a fair amount of years doing environmental insurance coverage work, uh, which is frankly the thing that led me first to mediation because uh, I, I was sitting around a table with maybe a dozen or more attorneys from the most expensive law firms in town trying to figure out how we were going to answer interrogatories from the oil company that was suing the insurance carriers. And I thought, this is insane. You know, we could take this money and just apply it directly to the wound. I, you know, it just seemed crazy to me. It was the first time I was involved in that level of, um, you know, couple hundred million dollar litigation. I represented Lloyds of London and we were usually um, kind of not primary carriers but first level access so we tended to lead the cases, lead the defense with um, primary insurance carriers. Um, So and that was like you know anyway I ended up in media I ended up in a mediation course because I, I just more and more began to think that uh, litigation was 17th century dispute resolution technology. <laughs> and if doctors were still practicing 17th century medicine, we'd all be in pretty bad shape. So I, uh, I signed myself up for a 40-hour course, and I got very excited. It was a transformative experience for me, and we can talk about that later. Um, and uh, so I enrolled in a master's degree program in uh, dispute resolution and um, practiced part-time, practiced law part-time, and started my own mediation practice and um, found that in my market, which is commercial litigation for major corporate plaintiffs and defendants, uh, they didn't really want to hire women. Mm. Um, In fact, my husband, who was um, counsel for the oil companies and the loyal opposition, uh, and we met litigating a case. (laughs) So... um, he had never hired a woman. Most of the men I knew, it, 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 the practice is like 80% male. Still was in 04 when I took my first mediation class. And lawyers still tend to think of uh, kind of mediated or negotiated resolutions as losing. And mediators 
you know, people who facilitate a negotiation uh, need to be big and tough and male. Uh, and, um, you know, I got hired for, you know, personal injury cases where a woman got burned in a beauty salon when they, you know, curled her hair. Not my specialty. So, <laughs> so, so I started blogging about negotiation in 04, 05, and women started coming my way. Uh, women wanted to learn how to negotiate. The lawyers weren't that interested. Um, they wanted to win. They knew they were going to settle, but it was losing. It's losing, settling. And, and I understood that. So anyway, uh, my business partner called me up one day and said, you want to do this for a living? And I said, no. And we gave a course, our first course for, for women professionals. And um, they had a transformative experience, um, which was similar to the one I had when I learned how to mediate. And so I said, yeah. Let, let, let's start a business. And so the two of us together, she, she had experience as a coach. Uh, I did not. I had experience as a Wolverine. Um, <laughs> and uh, together we, we put together She Negotiates. It was a good team, and now she's off doing something else. After 10 years together, she wanted to do more storytelling and uh, so I took over She Negotiates. So that's what I do now. I help women make more money. Tara, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Excellent. I am Tara J. Frank. I am an equity strategist. So I work primarily with CEOs and their C-suite teams on culture and leadership work, and I am the author of the new book, The Waymakers, Clearing the Path to Workplace Equity with Competence and Confidence. Fantastic. And so tell us a little bit more about the book. What What's it about? Yeah, good question, right? It's about a lot of things, quite honestly. But the reason I wrote the book is I spend most of my time in spaces with high-level executives, and I notice they all have three things in common. The first is that they wanted to do the right thing when it comes to equity and inclusion work. The second is that they don't really know what the right thing is. And the third is that they feel a little insecure about exactly how to step into the work. So the, the subtitle of Clearing the Path with Competence and Confidence is certainly very pointed uh, and very intentional. I wrote the book to serve as a guide, quite frankly, for leaders who have a heart to make a way for historically excluded or underestimated, underrepresented, right, talent, uh, who have that heart but not necessarily feel equipped uh, or confident in doing so. That's great. And I, I think the timing is perfect for a book like this. So I'm, I'm excited about this part of your journey. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So in our prep, you mentioned that there were three main things that leaders need to focus on if they want to create this type of change in their company. And the first one was embracing realism. The next one is taking responsibility. And the third one is building relationships. And so within this framework that you've created, when you talk about embracing realism, what does that really mean? 
What I mean by embracing realism is leaders as representatives of their company and also as the purveyors of culture, right, need to really get honest with themselves about the nature of their team cultures. I don't think we're telling ourselves the truth always about who we are. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about who we want to be. So I talk about culture, for instance, as existing on three levels, the claim, the policy, and the norm. So there's who we say we are, then there are the rules we put in place to reinforce those claims, and ultimately there are the norms, right? How we show up every day, how we choose, and how we behave. So getting a really honest sense of who we are really through the eyes of our employees, uh, to me, is a critical first step on the path to healing, right? And you can't really fix or address anything unless you fully understand what it is you're contending with. Yeah, and you know what's funny is that with this, it seems like such an obvious point, but it's point number one because even though it's obvious, people really struggle with this. So what is the biggest struggle that people have with this very simple but critical part of the process? Great question. I have two things I'll say about that. One, some people think they know what their employees are experiencing, but they don't. <laughs> My work has made that exceedingly clear. So some think they know, so they, they skip over that part because they believe they have a really good understanding of what employees are actually experiencing. The second thing, though, is sometimes it can be a little intimidating to ask a question that you don't really want to know the answer to. And it's easier for us as human beings, I believe, to just jump to the solution. Well, what does great look like? Well, what do people want? Well, what should we go do? And I always just say, we really need to pause. It depends. <laughs> you know, what you go do next depends on where you are today and what your current reality is. So I think it's those two things. One, they think they know, or two, they don't really want to know. You're spot on. And it's it's so true. And you could you can see that smile creeping onto my face because I've seen it <laughs> myself. And it's it's so true. It's such an interesting quirk in human psychology. Like you want to get better, but sometimes we're afraid of opening up the closet and seeing what's inside because it's it's not just that it will demonstrate that there's a lot of work to do and not just that it can sometimes be sad, but sometimes it's really hard to look in the mirror and recognize the potential impact that our behaviors have had on contributing to the problems that we're facing. Amen. It makes me think of, you know, one time I hired a personal trainer and he was like, okay, well, we need to get all these measurements and we need to weigh you. And we need to understand your body mass. Index. And I was like, do we really though? Do we really? Not? I, all I know is I'm not where I want to be. Is that necessary? Well, if you want to have a sense of whether or not you've made progress, yes, it's necessary. <laughs> it's painful, but, but necessary. Selena, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I admire you so much and I'm excited to be here. Hey, it is our pleasure to have you, my friend. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, well, I'm Selena Resvani, and really it's my mission to help women in particular carve out paths to the top, to leadership, uh, but to do it on their terms you know, to do it their way. Um, and, you know, a lot of that comes from my own learning as an author and an instructor, a LinkedIn learning instructor on this topic. 
but it also comes from my personal experience, you know, being what I call a recovering good girl, you know, often afraid to come out and ask for what I want. You know, that that was how I would describe myself uh, a lot of my growing up. And so it's not just a professional mission, but it's it's also a personal mission to really help people find their power and their voice to get their needs met. This is great. Yeah. And you, you can tell the difference when somebody is doing this from an academic perspective and when somebody has that lived experience, they're highly skilled and you have that passion behind it. So we, we appreciate that. And we want to amplify your voice as much as we can. And uh, listen, Selena, you kind of glossed over your LinkedIn learning courses, but they are really good. So let the listeners know about how they can uh, take advantage of that, too. Yeah, so if you go on that LinkedIn Learning Library, you'll see a number of courses that I teach around leadership development from how to be your own fierce self-advocate to how to demonstrate executive presence, okay, as well as courses on confidence, motivation, and developing great relationships at work. That's really important now, right? Because so many of us are doing it over Zoom or in, in a different way. So uh, I'm excited. 180,000 plus learners have taken these courses and uh, we're not done yet. <laughs> we, we're going to keep going. That is exciting. Kudos to you and everybody. We are going to put links in the description to all of those courses and Selena's website, of course. And today we are going to talk about how to be a fierce self advocate, which I love. This is great. And the, the three main topics we're going to talk about first, gender differences in negotiating. Next, moving from apprehension to action. And lastly, physicality and body language practices that build confidence. And I think one of the things that would be just an interesting place for us to start is talking about that operative word of fierce. Because you could have just said how to advocate for yourself or be a self-advocate, but you put the word fierce in there and I'm sure that was intentional. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. I think for a lot of us, we would describe ourselves as fierce advocates for our clients, you know, for our internal stakeholders and customers, you know, for our VIPs, maybe even for those folks who we supervise and manage, right? We want to be fierce advocates for those folks. And so often, one of the messages I share with people is, you're already doing this. You know, you're already doing this. My question to you is, what if you took that same ferocious self-advocacy, you know, that same uh, art of negotiation you're bringing to delighting clients to those areas that benefit you, like your title? your performance rating, uh, the juicy assignment that just came in and who's going to lead it, you know, your pay, right? All these conversations. What if you, you know, brought that same great advocacy to those areas that benefit you? And what's exciting is when you, you start to think in a different way to bring that same fierce self-advocacy, um, you can do it even more often, negotiation, and even more strategically. Right. You, you can it. really do it more strategically and think through um, how can I be empathic to the other person's situation right now? How can I think about what's top of mind for them? How can I make this a win for both of us? That's great. And now let's talk about the, the psychology of that for a little bit. I'm a psychology nerd. I can't can't help myself here. <laughs> because I think when you think about it logically, 
okay, if I advocate for myself, if I ask for what I want, if I am able to make these requests, it makes it more likely for me to get it. I think everybody will get that. And they can see that they can advocate for other people, but there's a mental block that prevents them from advocating for themselves. How would you describe that mental block and what would you suggest people can do to start to overcome that? Yeah, I think there are plenty of mental blocks. And and one of the pieces of advice I share with people is don't tell yourself no before they do, right? At least half of your success in negotiating well is that conversation you have between you and you, you know? Um, and when we try to negotiate, even if we're not successful, we're teaching other people something about our value. And, and that is meaningful alone. So uh, don't be so quick to discount, you know, the worthiness of your proposal or your raise request or the partnership you're proposing or whatever it is. Um, one important piece of that, though, is from a gender difference, when we look at some gender differences, women are a little less likely to negotiate when conditions are ambiguous. Okay, so uh, when let's say nothing at all is mentioned about salary in a job interview or a job description, women are less likely to negotiate um, as compared to maybe when the job description says salary is negotiable. There's almost an invitation there to negotiate. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Kwame. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation to join you and your listeners today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, my friend. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. My name is Scott Tillema. I'm an active duty law enforcement officer in the Chicago area. I'm a senior associate with the Negotiations Collective and faculty member with the Schrunner Negotiation Institute. Fantastic. And listeners, um, Scott has been a friend for a very long time, and I am so excited to have him on the show today because he has an incredible wealth of information and an incredible framework that he's going to share and a great TED Talk links to everything that he just described and the TED Talk in the description below. He's, He's too humble. He wouldn't admit it, but his TED Talk is, what, 2 million views now? Not quite. We're we're working toward that. Working toward that. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for joining us, man. I um I guess we should just start off with the framework, your new framework, but not just what the framework is, but what led you to try to create a new approach to handling these difficult conversations. Right. So I worked as a crisis and hostage negotiator with a regional SWAT team in the Chicago area for about seven years. And I was trained by the FBI in 2007 and taught the FBI methodology, which is uh, kind of the gold standard for hostage and crisis negotiators, the FBI behavioral change staircase, which should be familiar to most uh police negotiators and many negotiators beyond that, which relies heavily, um, you know, on their steps of active listening, empathy, rapport, and influence, and then behavioral change. And that's good and terrific. Uh, And as I've been teaching law enforcement across the country, um, I have a bit of a different approach. Number one, um, I'm not with the FBI, so I don't want to be teaching their stuff since I'm not uh, federal law enforcement, but I see 
this differently. And I think that it is so important that under stress, we have a mental model that we can lean on to help us find success in negotiations that I take more of a principle-based approach, which is a circular model different from the stairs. And I think that even that small change is an important difference in that if you look at behavioral economics, they'll tell you what you see is all there is. And if you are like me, the type A personalities, your goal is to get to the top stair, and there's five stairs. I am going to run up there as fast as I can, and I'm probably going to skip a couple stairs on the way because I know what the goal is. So a subtle change in how we view it is that we're going to go around and around these circle, and we're going to touch on each one of these four principles as we go around. And what that circle signifies to me, this is the bond that we create. And sometimes negotiators flip out when I tell them this, but I say your goal is not to free the hostages. Your your goal is not to get the person to drop the gun. Your goal is to create a bond and a connection with that person. And once you have that, then you're going to have influence. Oh, this is great. This is great. And you know what's really interesting? It reminds me a lot of the Carl Rogers approach to therapy, if you're familiar with that, um, because his approach to therapy was really revolutionary because everybody's saying, okay, we want behavior change. We want people to uh, start thinking in a different way. We want them to start acting in a different way. We're, we're trying to get to some specific destination. And his approach was unconditional positive regard. So we're going to try to create this relationship and the behavior change needs to be completely owned by the other side and it will happen if it does happen through the relationship, but you focus on creating that connection. And so it's almost like by not focusing on the outcome, you achieve the outcome that you're looking for. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Right. And it's about the, the mindset and the process that we are not trying to get to this goal, we're creating this connection. And I'm asked to keynote and train for groups outside of law enforcement. In sales, for example, I just did a sales keynote and I, I titled the keynote, Don't Sell. I don't want you to sell and come in with that goal. I want you to connect and create that bond. And then you're going to get those results that you're looking for. And I don't know, maybe they shouldn't take advice from me since I'm not in sales and I don't know anything about what they do. But it's just this different perspective. And I think, Kwame, especially right now, it's 2021. We've been living through this pandemic, through this lockdown, and the rules have changed. I mean, number one, we are 
just seeking connection. We're isolated and we're separated from each other. And that's what people want. We want to connect with each other. But also, I'm finding out in the field, we are incredibly resistant to pressure and people telling us what to do. And I think the high pressure approach and, and these and these quick sells is really not going to work in this new era where we're all fighting for autonomy. We're all kind of fighting for freedom. We're pushing back to say, I, I don't want to wear the mask. Uh, I, I want this freedom to travel to a different state, to a different country. And we still can't do this. You know, a, a year and a half after this pandemic started, so we have to be so sensitive to autonomy and people's freedom to choose and allow them the freedom to choose. So I really, really push, let's be respectful of that and let's create that connection. Let them know that I'm working with you and we're working together to get to this outcome. Let's say there's somebody who says, I don't, I've never liked new things. I've never gone to another country. I've had plenty of opportunities. I never wanted to go to a new country. <laughs> right, right. Um, for, for people like that, who now recognize that we are in a multi-generational, multicultural workplace, and they still want to be effective and respectful to the people around them. What specific approach would you suggest that they use to, to start to um, increase their cultural agility? <laughs> you used a pretty loaded word there, and that is, I don't want to. I don't want to be with someone of a different generation. I don't want to be with someone of a different country or culture. That, that, that's a loaded word. Um, if you said to me they didn't have experience doing it, that probably would mean to me that they've never sought it out, but it doesn't mean that they couldn't kind of incrementally start to do more and more novel things or, or interact with individuals that are more. So, so we actually structure experiences that the kind of graduate, graduate individuals like that into situations of novelty. Um, we've, we've done some wonderful programs, but if you're starting from the position of, I don't want to, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. The best thing you can do there, and it, you know, like every now and then we run into situations in companies where because of someone's expertise, they absolutely have to be the one that goes into an international situation and they very firmly say, this isn't for me. Um, what we do for those individuals is we structure lots of support around that individual. So he or she basically can um, free up the kind of the brain's bandwidth to, to technically do what needs to be done. Um, so we, you know, we'll just make sure they have a coach involved. We'll make sure that the places where they're staying look familiar, that foods are familiar. I mean, it's, it's really a, you are like kind of working with someone who, if you put them in too much novelty, they'll shut down. So, so you do have to be a little bit careful, but, but the, that word want is really important. That volition. Absolutely. No, this is great. Really, really helpful. And before you go, can you tell the listeners about the, um, the, the website with the app, the sure. book, and how they could work with you? Sure. Yeah. So, so we were really fortunate in that um, we were able to start a company called Skillify with an, organi- with a, an angel investor 
who basically believes in cultural agility and really was pushing it out there in terms of wanting to, to make sure it was available to the public. So this company, Skillify, was set up as a public benefit corporation. The product that I was talking about that I think your listeners would enjoy is called MyGuide.com, M-Y-G-I-I-D-E. So if you think about the word guide, but the idea is the double I, and we're helping cultures see eye to eye. So MyGuide.com, G-I-I-D-E, um, is, is the tool. And on there, they can get some free assessments about their own cultural values relative to different, you know, kind of default ones in different countries. They can do that assessment. They can also do an assessment of their own cultural competencies, like the tolerance, ambiguity, resilience, curiosity, um, and, and learn a little more on how to build it. That's fantastic. Paula, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Kwame. This was fun. Thanks. Nashida, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Kwame. Thanks for inviting me. It is our pleasure, my friend. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I am a psychologist in background. I have trained as a clinical and forensic psychologist. And really what that means is I've worked with some pretty challenging people and people who've been in challenging situations. So I worked in a maximum security environment with offenders and those who might be classified as psychopaths. I went on to work with the military, returning from war zones, treating post-traumatic stress disorder and head injuries. I now work with leaders, coaching them in the schools that I was trained in in having effective influence and working with negotiation, which is perhaps what brings me here with you today. Absolutely. And you have a book that's out. Can you tell us about that too? I do. I have a book that was released last year, my first book, my only book, called The Leadership Pin Code, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships. And essentially, it's a handbook for leaders on the very practical tips that I've learned and I'm now sharing with them on how they can have those impactful conversations, building trust in relationships, and very much about how you can do that in every conversation, every day of work. Okay. Now, for the listeners, they might say, wow, that book sounds fascinating. I should buy that. And they should say that. And they should say, also, your work is really fascinating. But they might not see the connection between the two. So what? where is the synergy? You know, the synergy is that a lot of the, the work that I had to do was building relationships with people who had very different experiences to my own and perhaps were resistant to change or were perhaps not very motivated to work with somebody like a psychologist on some of the challenges they were facing. So I was trained in skills around conversation, understanding how you can use body language to communicate and build relationships, and very much I what I call the ABC of how we develop trusting relationships with other people. What I've done in the book is I've shared that toolkit. So understanding your advanced preparation, that's the A, your body language, which is B, and C, the conversation you have. Those very basic skills that actually can make all the difference between working with somebody collaboratively and perhaps getting through those difficult conversations and conflicts that you might have. That's interesting. And I think one of the things that's most interesting to me um, coming from this field is that you put the C last, of course, uh, that's how A, B and C kind of relate to each other in, in general. Right. Uh, right. But especially when you're thinking about leadership, negotiation, persuasion, conflict resolution, a lot right. of people start with the conversation part, but you didn't start there. And I'm I'm assuming there's some level of intentionality behind that, too. It's very intentional, Kwame. And you will know this from negotiations 
that perhaps 80% if we want to put a figure on it, of your effectiveness in a negotiation is really about your advanced preparation. It's the research that you do on the people that you're going to meet with, that you want to negotiate with or have impact with. It's what you know about their intentions and their interests, their motivations, their drivers. And so it's very intentional that I put the A, the advanced preparation, at the beginning, not just because it's A in the ABC, but because actually that is where most of your success comes from, is in doing your homework, much as you would if you were going for an interview and you'd try and figure out who's going to be interviewing me, or if you're the interviewer, who is this candidate who's going to come in front of me? I need to know a little bit more about them. So for me, the ABC is intentional in its order, and advanced preparation is much more important than actually the words that come out of your mouth. Research shows, doesn't it, and you would be familiar with this, that most of our impact is to do with how we speak, how we communicate, not so much the words that we speak. Right. And based on what you've seen with people in the professional world having difficult conversations, when it comes to advanced preparation, I think that's one of the things that people really struggle with. So I know the listeners are probably tired of hearing me say that. So if, but I'm going to say it again. Um, (laughs) If you go to our website, americannegotiationinstitute.com slash guide, you can get access to all of our free negotiation guides. Preparation guide is one of them, but it's over 15 guides to help you walk through and systematically prepare. And one of the reasons why we do this um, is because People don't fully understand and appreciate what true preparation is. And in this uh, world where we're all part of the cult of busyness, a lot of times what I realize is that a lot of professionals can trick themselves into believing that they don't have time to prepare effectively for these impactful conversations. Alicia, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Another teammate on the show. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, Alicia Shaw. I'm an attorney with Carlisle Patchen and Murphy, and I do our employment law. We usually represent employers, so I'm typically on the management side, and I do a lot of HR consulting, a lot of counseling for our employers, um, and, and a lot of compliance work in terms of what do I do when this happens? And, and what happens, you know, what do I need to do if, you know, someone makes a request for an accommodation? Just a lot of very basic um, HR counseling and consulting, and it's a lot of fun. Fantastic. And so everybody, in case you weren't up to date, so I'm also an attorney at Carlisle, Patchen and Murphy because I am a stereotypical Caribbean American with multiple jobs. <laughs> so if you, need, uh, if you need legal representation in Ohio, we have you and you could work with Alicia. And so we are excited today because we're talking about awkward conversations. <laughs> and so before we get into the how-tos, why is it so important for us to have these conversations and have them well? So from my perspective, uh, as I said, being on the employer side of things, but even if you're representing an employee or even if you are the employee or you are the employer, I mean, there are things that happen at work that you just have to address. And sometimes they involve, you know, personal feelings. Sometimes they involve awkward situations. Sometimes they involve things that might, you know, broach inappropriate behavior. And so you can't just not say anything. So I think it's very important, especially for an employer to know, hey, these are the things to keep in mind when I have to go to my employee and either, you know, perhaps 
issue discipline, um, but, but more importantly, create a work environment that is beneficial to not only my, my, my company, but also to my employees. And so a lot of times I'm in a, I'm in a position where I'm counseling someone who is, um, who's had an issue come up that they need to address with an employee and they don't know how to do it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And uh, one of the things I always say is that sometimes the war chooses you. We don't, we don't have the option sometimes. <laughs> we just have to, to do what we need to do. Absolutely. And I think every person who started a business doesn't, you know, they, they know what they're doing for their business, but becoming an employer is so different. And, and a lot of people tell me, I never thought I'd have to have this discussion, Right. <laughs> um, but you do. <laughs> so. Exactly. Well, fantastic. Well, uh, audience, the three things that we're going to talk about on this topic are first, the importance of maintaining your professionalism and focus, and more specifically, how to do that. Because it's easy to say it, <laughs> much harder to do it. Um, the second thing is the importance of practice and more specifically, how to practice before the conversation. And lastly, the importance of a follow-up check-in in order to build the relationship and how to do that too. But before we get into that again, we have a story. So we're going to work from a case study, um, one that uh, Alicia had worked on uh, specifically, um, of obviously with some uh, key factors changed <laughs> for anonymity. Um, and so Alicia, how would you get us started with that story? Yes. So I had a call from a very, very nice business owner who who is in um, an industry that is very... Um, I would say it's, it's very blue collar, you know, it's not a services, it's, it's in kind of like a manufacturing. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of, of, of men and um, this particular uh, client called and said, Hey, you know, we have someone who is sending naked pictures of himself to coworkers and what do I do? Um, so, you know, starting with, you know, the most awkward of situations, you know, first of all, you know, you have the competing issues of, well, you know, this is a trusted employee and, and this is not something that I would ever expect I would have to deal with. And secondly, of course, it has to be dealt with. Um, and you have to have that conversation. So how do you have it? <laughs> So when we're actually having the conversation, maintaining professionalism and focus, what should we keep in mind here? Well, what I always tell uh, a client in this situation, and not even this particular situation, but, but something less extreme, um, you need to make sure that, that you have a clear idea of what you want to come out of the conversation. So going into it, you know, is it something where I just need to address something small? Is it something where there's going to be a termination at the end of the conversation? As in, you know, the situation we discussed where you have someone who's acted so egregiously that, that you're going to have to terminate them. Or at, the, at a minimum, there's going to have to be some significant discipline. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Hi, yeah, happy to be here. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? 
Sure. So I'm Andy Luttrell. I'm a professor of psychological science at Ball State University. I study persuasion, influence, and public opinion. Uh, and I also host the podcast Opinion Science, which features interviews with folks and, and explorations of ideas uh, all around the idea of public opinion and how our opinions can change and how we communicate them. This is great. So essentially, everybody, Andy is the man I wanted to be when I was <laughs> in undergrad, because um, my undergrad is, is, is in psych. And I remember, actually, you'd probably find this interesting. The first podcast I ever started listening to was The Psych Files. Mm -hmm. um, really, um, I love that show. Hmm. And so I said, one of these days, I'm going to have a podcast on psychology. And so now, listeners, you understand why I talk about psychology <laughs> so much. And also, make sure to check out Andy's podcast. It's really, really great. And I want to be clear about my bias. One of the reasons <laughs> I think it's great is because I was on the show. So we'll put a link to both the uh, the show and my episode on the show in the description below. And to the courses that Andy does as well. Andy is a friend who is very modest. So Andy, <laughs> please tell us about the courses you have too. Sure. So the, the newest one is an audio course called The Science of Persuasion, uh, which you can get online and listen to. And, and it's sort of a, a nice entry point into the psychology of persuasion from all the research that's been done from the very beginnings of this work uh, around World War II, where really scientists started to ask the question, how do persuasive messages work? Or how, how can they work better? Um, all the way up to all the kinds of experiments that we're doing today to understand how people can be persuaded and you know, how, could, how you could use that information to, to craft your own messages. This is great. Yes. So links in the description below for that too. So we are having Andy on the show today to talk about the science of persuasion as it relates to deeply held beliefs and strongly held opinions. And so when we think about this, I think really as psychology nerds, it makes sense for us to start off with operational definitions here. And so when we think about these deeply held beliefs or strongly held beliefs, what does that mean to you? Sure. So I will, I will say that I may slip into psychology speak by talking about these as attitudes. That's sort of the word that we use in psychology, but that doesn't always translate as well. So when I say attitude, I mean, basically opinion, right? It's just an evaluation you have. So I have a positive attitude uh, toward my favorite TV show. It just means I really like that TV show, right? I have a negative attitude toward uh, other things. And those are things I dislike, right? Those are my least favorite TV shows <laughs> and it goes beyond TV shows. Um, and so strong attitude or strong opinions, the way that we define them in social psychology is really two things. One is that that attitude tends to be durable, meaning if I tried to change it, it would resist being changed. And if I just kind of waited out a, a while and checked back in, it would be unlikely to have changed, right? So that attitude was durable. It was strong. It lasted a long time. And the other component is influence, uh, meaning that your attitude influences the way you see the world and the, the actions that you take, right? So if I have a strong attitude toward a politician, I'm especially likely to vote for that person, right? My behavior follows from my support for that person. But if I have a weak attitude toward that person, I may you know, I, I would say on a survey that I like this person, but I may not actually do anything about it, right? So a strong attitude is one that is both durable and influential for the choices that we make. This is great. And I think it's so important for us to, to start here because I think oftentimes we can be distracted by 
the perceived strength of the emotion behind the attitude. And so if we think about somebody having a strong opinion about something, we just assume by the amount of emotionality behind what they're saying that it means that it is durable and influential. But it sounds like, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, Andy, it sounds like they can be very, they can sound very emotional and passionate about something and it might be durable. They might maintain that same feeling one year, two years down the line, but it still might not be influential in that it doesn't change the way that they navigate the world in that they don't really do anything about it. Yeah, it could be. So I'll, I'll reframe that a little bit, which is to say that there's a little bit of a difference between what a strong attitude is and the things that we look for to try and suss out which attitudes are strong or not, right? So the, the, the metaphor I like to use in talking about this is the three little pigs story, right? So uh, the, the big bad wolf wanted to, I don't know, break into these pigs' houses. I don't actually know the backstory, <laughs> uh, right? So one of the pigs' houses was made out of hay. One of them was made out of sticks. One of them was made out of brick, right? And so ordinarily, we would look at that and we would go, okay, based on the building material, I'm going to make a guess that the brick one is the strong one and the hay one is the weak one, right? But we don't actually know which house is strong until we try to blow it down, right? Once the big bad wolf comes around and tries to knock those houses down and discovers that one house stays standing while the other one knocks down, only then do we know that one of them was strong and the other was weak, right? We use the building material to make a guess about which one was going to be strong, but until we actually look at what happens, that's when we can say that it's strong. So I say that to, to say that things like emotionality can be a pretty good indicator of which attitudes are strong. So we had a paper come out this year where we found um, that, in fact, when people hold an opinion for highly emotional reasons, that opinion is way less likely to change when you check back in later. We, we did some cool stuff where, you know, we, we looked at Yelp reviews uh, and you can you can update your Yelp review, you know, a year later, months later, if you go back to the restaurant. And so we looked at the language people were using when they wrote their first review. And then we saw, did their summary rating of that place change even a year later. And we found that the more emotional people's first review was, the less likely their review was to change later. Anuj, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kwame. I think it's a huge privilege for me and honor to join your podcast. The way I have actually seen all the different podcasts on your uh, on the list, the topics are stimulating. It is amazing the work you're doing, Kwame. I really appreciate all that, and I'm glad to be part of this. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I'm actually a finance professional. So by my profession and education, I'm a chartered accountant from India and a CPA here. But then life took me in a total different journey about seven or eight years ago when I actually uh, got into my MBA program, the UCLA-NUS uh, Joint Executive Program. And that totally changed my, my vision of life and, and the way I actually was looking at life. But then the one key factor that was life-changing and, and a turning point was the interest in negotiation. And I'm sure you understand how that interest in negotiation is, is great for anybody who actually picks it up. So during my MBA program, I first had a module on leadership and influencing. And then the influencing bit stuck in the back of my head for 
quite some time during the program. And then down the line, I had the actual negotiation module, the, the class on negotiation. And that's it. That was, that was something that made me realize this is my topic. And that was my uh, time of uh, my topic of calling, which I would say. I then started researching into the topic, started building content that I could share with the team. I did a, f a first couple of uh, immediate team sessions on negotiation. This was about five years ago. And people loved it. So you see how important this topic of negotiation is because the moment I shared just some basic content with them, people were stimulated by that. And I started researching deeper and deeper and deeper into the topic. I joined the Harvard program on negotiation and then the, uh, got the certification program. Um, and then it was amazing how I could just observe every conversation and pick something that was negotiation related in, in that conversation. So this is what happened over the last uh, four, five years, uh, five plus years now, but three and a half to four years down that journey, I actually started thinking about writing my book. So the journey since writing the book has been amazing. That's fantastic. This is really exciting because I had the, a similar experience in law school. I didn't know much about negotiation. My, under, my undergrad was in psychology and I just stumbled upon the class and it changed the way that I saw the world. And so for you, what was it about the topic of negotiation that really, really drew you in? Yeah, that's a great question, Kwame. So what happened in my life is I could actually see until I joined the negotiation class I could actually see that I had no clue what negotiation meant. Coming from India, even being a chartered accountant and, and a bachelor's in business, we had never studied structured negotiation. All negotiation that we pick up is from maybe observing family members, maybe observing parents who are in business, let's say, hopefully, and, and they are negotiating on a regular basis. But other than that, we hardly negotiate uh, or we hardly learn structured negotiation, right? So I feel that for the first significant part of my career, I was lacking that knowledge on negotiation, the structured negotiation, to the extent that I have been called out for not being a great negotiator. This was like seven years ago when I said, okay, now I have to change that. So for me, the turning point was as soon as I got into that um, the program uh, on uh, my in my MBA and then that negotiation class, that actually changed it for me. And I realized that if I have to improve myself, I first have to go deeper into the topic, but then I don't want to stop there. I want to start adding value to people who actually are in the same boat as me. Maybe they have never had negotiation uh, any class on negotiation or any learning on negotiation. And I don't want them to be in that same boat where they are failing in negotiation uh, over and over again, to the extent that I think we should teach negotiation to even teenage kids and, and, uh, and young uh, professionals and youth. And that is what I, led me to write my second book, which of course we'll discuss about. And um, my mission right now is to teach kids negotiation early in their life so that they can succeed over their career in life. 